How different are men and women really? It seems as though our culture is becoming more and more divided on this fundamental issue. On the one hand, we have conservative evangelical Christianity that emphasizes the God-ordained and designed differences between men and women. This idea has been coined as complementarianism by a pastor named John Piper and a theologian named Wayne Grudem. Here are the definitions given in their book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. They go on to paint a picture of the gender roles, though different, working together in perfect complementarity. An important note to make on these definitions is that they are created and instituted by God and not a simple cultural institution. Christian egalitarianism is the alternative view on gender roles. Here is a good working definition. Christian egalitarianism holds that all people are equal before God and in Christ, have equal responsibility to use their gifts and obey their calling to the glory of God, and are called to roles and ministries without regard to class, gender, or race. As you can see, each view seems to adopt opposite ends of the spectrum. Conservative Christianity would see men and women as different pieces of the puzzle, different but equal, whereas Christian egalitarianism would see less difference and more equality in traits. Bridget Schulte comments, So the message of my book isn't that we should have equality because science says it's possible. No, the message is, there's no reason we can't have equality if we want it. Science doesn't say that equality is impossible. We are adaptable and plastic as human species. We can have society any way that we want it. So which is the biblical perspective? Which works best in society and culture? Which view seems to be the most consistent? Are men and women different, or are they essentially the same? Is there a middle ground? We discuss this now on The Exchange. I'm Alex Turkmani, and this is The Exchange Podcast. Welcome to The Exchange Podcast. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, boys, I want you to describe your surroundings right now. I'll take it since Dana did last time. We are in a public library, but not the kind of public library you expect to see. Uh, this public library looks like it was built in the 21st century. Um, I would say that the walls are 80% windows overlooking a, a kind of like a um, forest almost, a lot of trees outside, a lot of nature. It's very open and spacious in here. A lot of sharp corners, sharp lines. It looks very modern uh, in the colors, a lot of grays, but uh, some some red and blue accents all around. Um, so pretty sweet, pretty nice. We're in a glass room right now, and the, the door has closed to make us soundproof. But the whole door is made of glass. It's a huge garage door comes down from the ceiling. It's really nice. It's really clean. The floor is cork, soft, and quiet. Similar to uh, McDonald's play places. Cork. Mm, or the first, but not uh, sticky. Or the first episode of this topic. Ooh. Ooh. Soft and clean or sticky. Depending on who you are. <laughs> what is it to you? What is the floor to you? In the last episode, which I would implore our listeners. Yeah. yeah you, you cannot listen to this part if you haven't listened to part one yeah you it's have just to not go gonna make sense you have to go back so i'm gonna jump right into egalitarianism let me get, let me give a really important and i think it's important that i say this sure a very important clarification here when we had the conversation about complementarianism uh, this is one of the few times where i'll come to defend them i they are not talking about 
class or race. They're talking about gender. Um, so I do, I do, this is as consistent as I'm, I'm trying to be extremely consistent here and I want to make that differentiation. I appreciate that that is in the description because there are cultures worldwide that involve that in how they view roles, but within American conservative evangelicalism, they, they, they're not talking about class or race, they're talking about um, gender. So go ahead. Alex. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Um, what do we think about this definition? I think it's mostly like Daniel said. I, I mostly agree with it, um, and I sympathize with the heart of it for sure. Uh, I just have a hard time understanding how that squares with the text that we read earlier. Um, now, I mean, I understand. You know, they're going to pull text like like uh, Galatians is at three. I think that there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus is, is what they would read. And they would, they would say, well, gender does not matter in the kingdom of God. Uh, what, what matters is that we believe in Christ, that we, that we all equally believe in Christ, and we all have equal value and equal worth and equal function uh, in the kingdom of God because of that. We're all a kingdom of priests, right? And that does not distinguish between men and women. Yeah, and, and I think what is important to note about the view of complementarianism is that they are not intending to say that not all people are equal in value, worth. And they would also say that even though there is a difference, there's not a difference of the image of God, of importance, of value, or anything like that. Now, the, their, their argument may be inconsistent, and their argument may actually end up saying that, but they're not intending to. So I think a lot of this definition doesn't actually, address, doesn't actually contrast with complementarianism because it holds a lot in common with complementarianism. Yeah, that was one of the things that struck me when, I, when you read it, for sure. Well, I, I think it does when it says that, that, you have, that all people have equal responsibility to use their gifts and obey their calling to the glory of God. That equal responsibility... Um, it, it is, it may not say it, but it is insinuating a few things okay. that we talked about in the first sure. episode. What is it insinuating? There are things in the church that a complementarian would say, well, this is for men and this is for women. And I think this is insinuating that it doesn't, that that doesn't matter. That what matters is what you're gifted at. And if that is preaching and teaching and you're a woman, that's okay. Ephesians four also is an interesting text where it talks about submitting to one another, talking to men and women. That could hold weight for this type of an argument. It seems to talk about distinction-less submission. Do we think that one has to depart from the readings of the New Testament in order to hold this view? I think that one has that one has to be willing to adapt to a different hermeneutic, for sure. Okay. You cannot you cannot hold to a conservative hermeneutic and be an egalitarian. I, that's that's all I can say. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, and it does seem like uh, there is an interesting trajectory between from egalitarianism to eventual eventual um, liberal Protestantism. And there definitely is a connection there. That once you adopt a hermeneutic, which would allow for egalitarianism, it's very soon after that a hermeneutic which allows for liberal Protestantism will follow. Yeah, I, they go hand in hand. What I'm saying about egalitarianism and complementarianism, as Josh says, is connected to a whole lot of other things yeah, that all have a unifying connection on as to how I value the Bible, how I see the authority of the Bible, and how I apply the Bible. So what is, what is that unifying hermeneutical grid that's used uh, in those instances? I, culture is the big word. 
for a liberal Protestant. So it's beholden to culture. <laughs> so it, what he's it's saying, subject to culture. Okay. Subject to culture. Sorry, I don't know what beholden okay. means. <laughs> it's subject to culture. <laughs> beholden by your glory. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine where this is going now. Mm. Okay, back to the topic. It's so you would say that this your reading of the New Testament is subject to the culture. I would say that the writers of the New Testament were writing in a cultural context, and that comes out in their writing. That they were trying to figure out how do we operate, how, how do we organize ourselves, and that there is, and that much like we would today in a corporate world, say, okay, here's the things today that are working and that are not working. Let's do that. I think that in much the same way, especially Paul wrote with that kind of subconscious influence. So you don't think Paul ever tried to correct culture or transform it? I can't. I can't say that. No. Do you? Do you think the Bible today tries to trans should should try to transform culture? Yes. With this I, this subject, then should the teaching in the Bible transform our culture? The ones that don't change. Yes. So the the way that we understand family structures, relational structures, does change. Should the Bible correct culture? Let's take, I mean, let's take the conversation a little bit more specific to egalitarianism, because we're talking about a few different things here when you say that, and I'm saying yes, but I think we're going in circles. Is a better question, should the Bible condition what the relationship between men and women looks like? I would say yes and no. There's transcendent values for, health, for healthy relationships, such as um, patience, love, humility. How do you know which transcendent values are healthy for relationships? This is a great question, actually. Because <laughs> uh, I would say the Bible gives us those. Sure. Uh, so how do you know what those sure. are? Sure, but there, but there are some relationships where you can follow the pattern of what the New Testament says your marriage should look like, and it doesn't work because those two people were not designed to operate in that pattern. And for other people, it does work. How do you know it's not working? What does that well, mean? Well, divorce is a telltale sign. There's a hypothetical person out there who can't, can't function within the realm of manhood and womanhood, the Bible explains, and they will become divorced because of that? Not necessarily. Okay. No, it's just not going to work. Okay. I just don't know what that means exactly. Sure. Like, there are some people who can, who can work really well in a relationship where the male makes the final decision, and there are other people who work best in a relationship where the female makes the final decision. And so, uh, how do, so then how do you look at that and you say, oh, okay, how does that make sense in light of what Paul wrote? Are they in disobedience? Are they doing something wrong? Are we talking about, are we talking about a category where people can be comfortable outside of God's instruction? And I would say that at least temporarily they can be. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. So, yeah, so I don't think we should take a results-based approach. Coming back to your point a little bit earlier, Daniel, culture is the hinge and the driving force behind the hermeneutic that you approach the Bible with. Would you agree with that? From a liberal hermeneutic, yes. Do Christians have the right to use the Bible to confront and to correct culture? I mean, yes, of course, but there's so many caveats with that. When don't they have the right to do so? Again, when it's not a transcendent value, and then you're going to ask, well, how do you define transcendent values, correct? Things that, things that in the narrative are always there. But from Moses to Paul, it stayed the same. You said last episode that it may have added compassion, 
Which I would say that God was just as compassionate when he wrote it with Moses as he was with Paul, but that's a minor difference. I would difference. beg to differ. Okay, it's a minor difference. <laughs> Especially with some of the stuff that went down I'm ta- in the uh, wilderness. But I'm talking Genesis 1. Okay. Did we make a distinction, and I think Paul makes a distinction, between pre-fall and post-fall functions within marriage. That Paul makes his arguments prior to sin entering the world. He doesn't say, well, uh, Abraham treated Sarah like this, so we should treat our wives like this. He says that before sin entered into the world, this is how men and women interacted within marriage. That is God's ideal for the future, so that's how we should interact and now. That, and that every marriage that has followed has been an incomplete picture of what it was meant to be. We have to ask, in what way does this account of marriage line up with God's ideal for marriage? And when it doesn't, when it deviates from that, then it's wrong. Is it wrong for a man to own a woman as his property, as his wife? Yes, because that's not what God's ideal was in Genesis 1 Well, God one didn't and say it, but it doesn't go against it either. You see what I'm saying? That makes a woman of lesser value and of worth than the man, but they're both made in the image of God. And I would say that the same thing goes with slavery, that um, somebody, an, an individual owning another individual would contradict the image of God and the equal value that they have. And so if that's happening, and even in the Old Testament, if it's happening in the Old Testament, then that would be uh, contra the idea that God has made. Sure, but I mean, a woman is sub- essentially, in the conservative perspective, a woman would be submitting her will to the will of another person. And no less than a man is submitting to the, his will to the will of another person in Jesus. That's, okay. So, yeah, and so that just seems say. extremely convenient to me. How so? It's almost like a priesthood, right? So we're building hierarchies again. That 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 according that according to you don't don't have anything to do with the value of the person. I'm slightly uncomfortable with the word hierarchy. Depends on what you mean by that. Someone who manages someone who's under them. I wouldn't say manages. Okay. It's not a master slave relationship. It's sure, very I'm, different than that. It's so so like That's why I think that's why I use manager employee type relationship. Like the employee isn't less valuable than the manager, but the manager has more responsibilities and the employee has to act, like only do things if the manager's okay with it. But the manager also gets some benefits that the employee doesn't, which is why, and, and he might be more valuable to the company, to the boss. So the boss might only talk to the manager and not to the employee. So the, it breaks down. Okay, And I think That's that the, the, the way the New Testament and the Old Testament, I think, describes it is that God talks to both Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, when Paul writes the New Testament, he writes to both men and women. Uh, he writes to slaves, too. <laughs> he, he elevates even a slave to the value of God's addressing you directly in this moment because you're made in the image of God, just like all of these other people are. So I think the problem with egalitarianism um, is that they they seek to create a functional equality between men and women based on experience and not based on an objective truth found in Scripture. And I think that if you don't base it on objective truth, now you're left to subjective, independent reasoning and sure. you've, you've made yourself your, the own authority, your own authority sure. at that point. Yeah, I get that. And I think that that's, that's a dangerous place to be, especially when interpreting the Bible. Sure. Yeah, I get that. I, I think that's, again, I think that's, where, that's the difference between saying that um, culture informs the Bible instead of saying, no, the people who wrote the Bible were writing within a culture, much like any other author was writing within their culture. Does that make sense? The culture that exists within Genesis 1 and 2 was created by God. Like God created a culture. God created a garden, not a forest. And he put a man and a woman in it with functions and roles. And so that's, that's a culture that wasn't created by man, but God. Uh, if you read it like that, then we have a, an ideal culture to, to refer back to. And I think that Paul refers back to.
So the message of my book isn't that we should have equality because science says it's possible. No, the message is there's no reason we can't have equality if we want it. Science doesn't say that equality is impossible. We are adaptable and plastic as human species. We can have society any way that we want. Wow, that's loaded. There's like five points in there. Yeah, wow. there's a lot that kind of needs to be unpacked. Let's start here. Is her perspective a biblical one? I would say no, because the core of it, the core of the argument is that last part. We can have culture however we want. We can have society any way that we want. It doesn't, it doesn't start with an assumption of God is, God knows best and God commands based on what is best. It, it assumes an autonomy that the Bible doesn't allow for, I think. I, she's also coming from a perspective that says that a man's ability to understand God, and again, being culturally conditioned in writing what they wrote, evolves over time. That their ability to understand religious text and religious experience and culture changes and shifts. And I think that the argument at the end of the day is uh, whether the culture should always reflect what the Bible says, quote unquote. And she would say it depends because it's always changing. I mean, not to rehash an old, arg- an old discussion, um, but it, did, it didn't change from Moses to Paul. And when I say Moses, I mean the garden. So in my opinion, it's hard to make the argument that it should now change when it didn't change before. Here's the thing. I qu- I'm questioning Moses. You're not. Does that make sense? I think that's somewhere where we haven't communicated yet. Right. I agree with that. And I think she would be as well. Here, here's something that might, that might be helpful. It, we read a book a few years back, Four Views on Moving Beyond the Bible to Theology. Do you guys remember that? And uh, that, was, that was fun. That was so I fun. That. I loved that. We, <laughs> great. Carly made some great uh, complimentarian snacks for us. And, she didn't want to. I told her she had and to. And Alex said, okay. you have to have no, brownies no, no, and you sir. have to have chips. No. That's exactly how it worked. It was beautiful. Um, but with that being said, the, the, the last article on that is by William Webb, and he writes about a redemptive, a, a redemptive movement model um, of understanding the Bible's ethics. And, and he uses the example of a symphony, that the Bible, uh, the Bible is written like a symphony of notes that begins in, in Genesis 1 and ends at the end of Revelation. And um, our, our, what we have to do is continue writing that symphony. The symphony didn't end in Revelation. We have to continue writing it out. We can't, we can't write it um, in a way that changes the tempo or changes the keys or changes things drastically, but we have to, we have to continue in what was written before. But but as time adapts, sure, in order to to adapt with the culture, that might require a change of key or that might require uh, changing up the notes a little bit or the timing a little bit. But it's not going to be something that's going to be drastically different than what we saw before. So he would allow for complementarian or egalitarianism within that. He would say that egalitarianism is in the same symphony, but simply a different way of playing the same song. Is that is that what you're saying, Daniel, or no? Mm, no, it would be more like talking about the composer than it was the symphony. Okay, it'd be more like out. saying it'd be more like saying um, these notes don't necessarily mean this chord, even though you're looking at the paper and you're like, "What do you mean? That's a G chord? I, what are you talking about? That's a G chord?" And the person is saying, "Yeah, but I don't 
trust that that person really understood all of human history and culture. So Therefore, I cannot trust that what they wrote was literal. So we, so we should go back and adjust the symphony where it needed to be adjusted in the past based on our present no, experience? We don't need, we, no, we would add to it. Okay. We would add another movement probably. Okay. For non-music people, that, that might have been very confusing though. And, and do we need to stay within a structure or are we allowed to freely run with it? Music actually, actually is a really good example because it doesn't stay within the structure. Like if you, if you study quote-unquote classical music from the 1920s and for, up to 40s, it is so different to the point that the tones are different, the timing is different, the structures are different. What is considered to be a sonata or a symphony, fill in the blank, is completely different than what it was 200 years ago, still in the same genre, but totally readapted and, and uh, interpreted in a completely different way. Because of what was going on in the world at the time. So we're allowed to, f- to follow culture where it might go and, 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 and add to the Bible as we, as we allow culture. From an, from, uh, an altruistic perspective, which is the, the liberal perspective on theology, I would say yes. I feel like that's dangerous. That's fair. I mean, I think that ultimate, ultimately that, that goes against the core and central message of the Bible, which is to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I think that you can't love the Lord your God without trusting the Lord your God with all your heart. And so I would yeah, just Yeah, but ask, I think that they would, make, they would make a distinction that ends up in a circular argument between the two camps. But the distinction is I'm not questioning God. I'm questioning the people who wrote the Bible. I'm questioning what they understood and what was, in, what was also influencing what they were writing. So what's the relationship between between God and the Bible? Exactly. Well, I will, I will say, I, I appreciate that the egalitarians I've interacted with are willing to say either one, no, Paul was wrong, or two, Paul was narrow-minded and didn't have a vision for 2,000 years of history and development. Um, that uh, at the end of the day, I disagree with, I disagree with those writings, um, and not try to fit their their model strictly within a Pauline writing because you, you can't. I think you can't do that consistently. Um, now, I think that that leaves a lot of egalitarians in a very risky place to where they've they've undermined the authority of Scripture really in in all areas of their lives once they have left complementarianism, which is why I think it's such an important issue, um, because they have now become the, the source of authority for what is true, what is normative and what is not ethically in the Bible's own writings and teachings, which is where I find it very dangerous. And so I find moving beyond the Bible, ethically speaking, actually destroys the core and central message and truth of, of the Bible. I think a lot of it is because they are questioning the people who wrote the Bible, um, it's a lot of application from doubt. So to be honest, you are pulling at straws at this point because you're not sure what exactly the ethic is. If you can't trust the person who wrote it for it to have been something that actually happened or that it is the way that they say it is, um, that they may have misunderstood God, that they may have misunderstood what they were writing, 
or that it doesn't relate to today, it is application from doubt because you're a skeptic. So when you apply from doubt, Josh is right, there is no, uh, there is no Hammurabi's code. There is no tax code. There, you can't find it in writing. I would say that um, the strength of egalitarianism is that it finds its ethic in narrative instead of code. Um, so when you read Genesis 1, you pull out the things that we've learned throughout human history, religious interaction, writing, to be the ethic, which is that Adam called her his own and that she was just as equally responsible to do the things that they were supposed to do in the garden and that there was no um, different role for her than there was for him. And that ultimately that is what the kingdom of Christ would seek to establish. And that even though an egalitarian wouldn't be able to nail down what that looks like today, they can nail down what it might look like today. And maybe that's not strong enough um, for someone who wants to be more consistent, but I'm willing, again, from the altruistic hermeneutic of, of a liberal Protestant, I, I'm more willing to go with what is, what is healthy, what makes sense, what works, than to be so staunch about a text that you can't see the people who are right in front of you, if that makes sense. And to be clear, you would say that it's a case-by-case -case situation. That yes. Is, yeah. It's not about what role you're playing. It's about who gets to make the final decision. I believe that, that, that you figure that out in groups and not by, by your gender. Thank you for listening to our conversation on the Exchange Podcast. We work hard to make each one of these episodes engaging and thought-provoking. And now it's your turn. Do you have any thoughts about today's episode? We'd love for you to join the Exchange online by following us on Facebook and Twitter. Links are in the show description. And while you're at it, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. One more thing. We've received all of our music for Season 2 from HookSounds.com. There are some great tracks and artists available on that site. If you're looking for music for an upcoming project, we highly recommend you go with them. Thanks again for listening, and from all of us here at The Exchange Podcast, I'd like to wish you a good night and good luck.